Hello, and thanks for finding us. Karam Deo is a local church in Denver, Colorado. We're a network of friends following Jesus together. Join us for preaching, teaching, announcements, and other musings. The contrast of what we're doing right now is hilarious to me. We're going to spend a half hour reading through and reflecting on a 2,500-year-old philosophical treatise by some Hebrew in the Middle East, and then tonight we're going to go watch a bunch of Americans smash their heads together and throw a pigskin around. And I don't know, something about the contrast of these two moments, just, man, Christians, we are a peculiar breed, right? That is awesome. I love it. So if anyone missed last week, this whole Gathered Seasons, we're going through how to handle Scripture faithfully. I mean, in our house churches, in individual rules of life, engaging the Scriptures is a core fundamental practice as a follower of Jesus. And so we're just trying to talk about it and talk about best practices of how to do this. Uh, There's no magic formula. There's no perfect way. But I gave the framework the first few weeks. And then last week, Matt Hulse kicked off four different individuals preaching from different books, different genres, different time periods, different authors, trying to at least do our best to model faithful handling of the scripture. And Matt did such a beautiful job last week. I was like blown away. If you didn't listen to it, I'd encourage you to go back because there's a layer of sophistication of what Matt's doing where he's, he's taking some of this kind of nerdy, academic, historical, cultural context. But then he did such a beautiful job of humanizing it. And he really invited us in to see and understand and like feel the relationship between Paul and Titus. That this isn't just some, again, flat book that fell down from heaven, but this is a real man who really had this encounter with Jesus, was friends with this guy Titus, walking with him for 20 years, then wrote this letter to him, and he kept saying, he said it a few times during the message that, you know, the book of Titus wasn't written in one hour, it was written in 20 years. And just this idea that the inspiration of the book, the authority of the book, was only matched by the inspiration of the Spirit leading this guy named Paul for 20 years. And so again, that's what we're talking about with the human and divine, the incarnational spirit of Scripture. And uh, yeah, so go check it out. I'm going to today lead us through the book of Ecclesiastes. Who doesn't get excited about Ecclesiastes, right? I'm sure you all were reading it this week, just chomping at the bit. As much as I can, I'm going to follow kind of the four-part structure that I presented to us a few weeks ago. So we're going to start in prayer. So I'm just going to open us in this posture of humility, coming before the Lord. Father, yeah, we thank you that when we gather together, you you promise that you're present and with us. And Father, I just submit to you in fear of the Lord that the words I share today, I do my best to try and communicate what's on your heart for, for our community, our church family, from this book, this piece of literature written so long ago. Yeah, and I just pray that you'd be stirring things in people's hearts. Just ask that, yeah, beyond even what I say, that you'd be stirring and speaking in our minds and imaginations as we go through the book. Amen. All right. Second step is observe. So what we're trying to do when we come to the text to observe, we're going to look at a handful of things, but first off, we're just going to engage it and read it. I'm just going to read the opening half of chapter 1, just to kind of give us a taste of the book of Ecclesiastes, and then I'll unpack a handful of other things, just some background. The words of the teacher. 
the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and it sets and hurries back to where it rises again. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All the streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Amen. <laughs> now do you get the joke of Super Bowl and Cotton? You get it? It's like pretty depressing, right? Okay. So let's talk a little bit about, first off, the genre of wisdom literature. What the heck? What is this? <laughs> what type of writing is this? What's the medium or art form that the author is using to communicate something of purpose? So, a few things that I, I could say about this. The general books in scripture that are categorized as wisdom literature are Proverbs, the most obvious one. And then we have the book of Job, the book of Ecclesiastes, some would throw Song of Songs in there, and then some of the Psalms actually would probably qualify more as wisdom literature than poetry. But yeah, it's kind of this crazy genre that was a form of communication in the ancient world. It's not as familiar to us. I think one of the biggest differences that we need to be aware of when we come to wisdom literature is it's an anthology, meaning it's a collection of sayings and things. And so there's a, kind of a master editor that is composing and arranging these pieces that has a unified theme and purpose to them. But when you just take them as little bite-sized pieces, they might feel kind of random or they're bouncing around and hitting all these different topics. And uh, the key, I think, interpretive principle that we need to understand when we're reading a wisdom text out of Scripture is it's all about probabilities, not promises. So this is very different than some of the words of Jesus or some of the words in the prophets that Sayo is going to teach through next week with us. So probabilities, not promises, are kind of the set the boundary markers for wisdom literature as we read. The second key foundational idea is the understanding of what in a Hebrew mind wisdom is. I think I've talked about this in previous teachings and messages, but the Hebrew word for wisdom is hokmah, and the first people in scripture that are said to possess hokmah are the artisans and craftsmen who are designing and creating the beautiful things for the tabernacle. So by wisdom as moderns, we hear that word and we think of people with higher degrees or professors or we think of this cerebral, cognitive, rational intelligence. And in a Jewish mind, that couldn't be further from what wisdom is. It has far less to do with your IQ and far more to do with your posture in the world, your, your understanding of yourself before God and yourself before other people. That is what makes a wise person. And a wise person 
isn't just someone who knows something in their head, but they follow through and it, it goes into all of their life. And the goal of wisdom ultimately is to lead a good life. Uh, I have introduced this in some of the earlier teachings, but I think in many ways, some of the, the little funny nerdy analogies I gave about magnets and poles and fear and desire, I'm, I'm drawing a lot of that teaching from the wisdom literature itself that these philosophers of old in the Hebrew Bible are trying to give us a paradigm and a framework for posturing ourselves in this world, this world of mystery, this world where we are these little finite creatures. And so the Proverbs tell us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And then as we go on through the story of God, we quickly realize that God in his character is not one who is to be feared, but he is one of unfailing love. So. The fear of the Lord, I like to say, is a reality to recognize, not a command we need to follow. And the book of Ecclesiastes, I think, brings us really beautifully and really honestly to the limits of this wisdom. And in many ways, if Proverbs is kind of the template of wisdom literature, the book of Job through suffering, and then the book of Ecclesiastes through big philosophical life questions, they're basically asking and, and almost doing commentary on wisdom literature, saying, yeah, 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 okay, here's this nice bumper sticker proverb that if you do this, it will go well with you. Yeah, but what about when it doesn't? What about when you do everything right and it still blows up in your face? And, and so there's this kind of brutal honesty to the book of Ecclesiastes that is, I think, really commendable and really beautiful. And we'll see that in just a moment. Okay, so that's understanding the type of art and literature that we're actually reading here. And it should frame the paradigm of how we handle it and how we interpret it. Now, we'll, we'll blaze through this really quick. If this was a Bible school, we might spend hours going through some historical, cultural, and some literary overview. But I'm just going to, again, my goal here is just to give you a little taste of this. And as we've been trying to model from the start, the information I've gathered here is not inaccessible to us as followers of Jesus, especially in this day and age. You can hop on and watch a Bible project video. You could hop on Amazon and buy a great little book called How to Read the Bible Book by Book, How to Read the Bible for, you know, there's these simple tools and resources that are readily available to us. And it's a huge privilege to have access to them because people for a lot of history did not. Cultural historical background. <laughs> Wow, nothing like talking about cultural historical background at 1.30 on a Sunday afternoon, right? <laughs> this is why I said I wanted to go first, and then, you know, they can do worship after. <laughs> I'm going to get you all your fresh and beady-eyed. Okay, I promise I'll make this as painless as possible, but there's some important things. So the book of Ecclesiastes comes from the Greek word ekklesia, which is the word in the New Testament for church, and it just means a gathering of people. And there's a whole bunch of history of... Why is it Greek? Because the Hebrew Bible was translated into a Greek translation called the LXX and blah, blah, blah. The, the opening line of the book introduces the person who's going to be speaking to us as Koheleth. And that, again, just means the teacher or one who gathers people. So the context and purpose of this book is, as best we know, likely this book was read as an oral presentation, almost like spoken word. So it, it would take about 35 to 40 minutes to perform which I thought about just doing that, but against my best judgment, I changed my mind. And I think one thing that's really important we'll see as we get into this, the book is almost, it's polemical. It's like, it's intentionally poking and prodding and almost offending you. 
And at times, it borders on the line of satire. And I'll try to draw that out as we read some from it today. When was this book written? There's kind of two main understandings of when it was written. Either at the end of King Solomon's life. King Solomon in the Hebrew mind is kind of the fountainhead of wisdom. There's some references in some other historical books like First Kings that talks about him being like the wisest human in all of history. He asked for wisdom from God. He wrote down thousands of proverbs. So whether he wrote everything in all the wisdom literature or not, in the Jewish mind, it's all attributed to him, right? It flows from Solomon. And so some people think this book is written right at the end of his life. Others think that it might have been written in the third century BC, which was an interesting time. The Israelites had come back from exile, but then the Greeks had taken over. And we could get into some history of why I think maybe a later date is better. But either way, Israel is either on the verge of splitting into a northern and southern kingdom, because Solomon's sons are about to kind of blow it all up, or they are back from exile and they are disheartened and they are doubting if the prophetic promises of the Old Testament are even going to come true. Because here they are back in the promised land and the Greeks are in charge through these kings down in Egypt called the Ptolemaics. But so either way, the context here that this book emerges from and the audience it's being performed for or written to is one of discouragement and despair. Okay which will probably help make sense of why the tone of the book maybe matches that. Yeah, attributed to Solomon or Kohelet, the teacher. Solomon's not named in the book, but historically the church thought it was Solomon. So I think we'll talk about this again in just a second, but it's interesting. The opening lines, there is like an editor and the closing lines. And then the middle part of the book is this oral presentation by a teacher. And it's almost as if the author is using this performance of this teacher giving this long monologue as a rhetorical device, trying to make a point. Because we get this kind of intro statement uh, at the beginning that I read, verse 2, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And then at the end, we'll get the narrator's final thoughts and reviews. And again, I think it's really commendable. The book searches out timeless questions, and, and it explores the reality that often probabilities fail us. And, and these prophetic words from God or this promise from a scripture verse, right? In real life, when you're actually living it out, it doesn't always play out like you'd want it to or like you would think it would if things were fair. Okay, the structure of the book, again, it's really beautiful and it's really intentional. We have this opening prologue where the writer presents the words of the teacher and then the middle part of the book, 95% of the book, is the teacher's investigations. And it's the teacher trying to basically ask, what is the meaning of life? And this whole section of investigations opens with this beautiful poem that I read for you in chapter one that basically talks about how time is the great equalizer. It's one of the only guarantees we have is that time is going to keep ticking. Your life is going to go on. You're going to get old. And then at the end of all the teacher's investigations, there's another poem about death and how death too is the great equalizer. And so <laughs> there's kind of this depressing sandwich that the teacher is, is filling all of his philosophical questions and, and reflections upon in this poetic sandwich of time and death being the only guarantees we have here on this earth as human beings. I mean... For me, I read this book and I'm like, whoa, the Enneagram is real because Enneagram 4s, anyone in the room, come on. This is like biblical evidence that the Enneagram 4 is a real personality type, okay? <laughs> because 
They're just sitting there in the pain and, and the mystery of unanswered questions and frustrations. And what does it mean to have a book of the Bible that invites us to do that? So that's our kind of overview. Guys, that wasn't that painful. We did that pretty quick. So let me talk through and just read some verses from this book. So that opening line, meaningless, meaningless, everything is utterly meaningless. The Hebrew word here is hevel, hevel, hevel. And we'll talk a lot about this word hevel today. It appears 38 times in the book, and it only appears like 72 times in the entire Bible. So it's very clear that the author wants us to sit in this idea and understand something about this concept of hevel. It's often translated meaningless, which is like as depressing as it gets. It can also be translated vanity or futility. And there's some, you know, there's some debate about the connotation of this word. Some people think it's just trying to describe human limitations. Others think that it is actually just an Enneagram 4, like in about a depression, writing the most depressing book in all of scripture. So there, there's debate about what the emphasis of that word should be. But I think if we look at a more literal understanding of the word, it gives us a better sense. The, the word hevel actually means vapor or smoke. And so I think part of what the author is trying to communicate is, and maybe you still find it depressing, but that as Koheleth, the teacher, goes through the investigations, even the good things, right? Even the moments of joy, the friends, the food, the pleasure, the success, the minute we think we've attained it or have it, we reach out to grab hold and it's like smoke and it just, it just moves. And we try again and, and we can see it, we know it's there, but then when we try to hold on to it, it's just gone. So something about the, the limitations that we have as humans to actually really hold on to anything. And so there's a real sobriety in, in the word and in the idea whether you find that you know, depressing or not, I guess, is probably up to you. But I think there's, again, a real brutal honesty in it. So even the good things in life, when you seem to have attained them, you grab and boom, it vanishes. It's elusive and fleeting. So in the middle chapters here, the second part of chapter one all the way through, I'm just going to go through some verse references. Don't try to keep up. It'll be too fast. But chapter one, verse 16 to 18 Again, this is where it's hilarious, right? We see the satire nature of the book. Even pursuing wisdom, which the wisdom literature says you should try and pursue wisdom. Well, even pursuing wisdom, it will only leave you with folly, sorrow, and grief, a chasing after the wind. And this phrase, chasing after the wind, is going to occur in almost every chapter of the book. It's the second most common theme right next to Hevel. Chapter 2, verse 10, pleasure. Yep also hevel. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure, and in the end it left me with hevel. Chapter 2, verse 12 through 16, wisdom and folly. So you could be a complete moron and screw up your whole life, or you could be the wisest man, King Solomon. Either way, it's going to end in hevel. You're going to die. <laughs> <laughs> Chapter 3, verse 11, God has set eternity in the human heart. It's one of my favorite verses in the whole book. But even still, we meet the same fate as animals. Death, the great equalizer. Chapter 3, verse 20. Chapter 4, verse 13. Okay, okay, sure, wisdom and, and all that still leads to hevel, but what about societal advancement? What about accumulating wealth? Nope, societal position also leads to hevel. I've been a king. I've done it all, the teacher says, and it still left me meaningless, meaningless. 
chapter 5, don't even dream about making vows. Don't even talk too much. It's all Hevel. I feel like at this point in the book you're reading, and all I picture in my head is that, that old donkey from Winnie the Pooh, Eeyore. Yeah, yeah, Eeyore. So every line that's coming through, it's just, it's just Eeyore, right? And, and just when you think the author is giving you a glimmer of hope, Eeyore comes back in and just kind of slams it to the ground. Chapter 7, verse 18. Okay, here we go. A little wisdom literature. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes, but again, Hevel, you're going to die. Chapter 7, verse 20. There's no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. There never has been. For you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. And again, there's a real exposure of the brokenness of our humanity, right? I think that's a real cultural critique for us as modern people. Chapter 7, 29. God created mankind upright, but we have gone in search of so many schemes. Chapter 9, verse 1 through 3. All share the common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of the people are full of evil and there is madness in them. While they live and afterward, they will join the dead. And this, guys, luckily it's Valentine's Day tomorrow. You can thank me later if you're making any Valentine's cards tomorrow. Ladies too, I guess. This could go either way. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love, all the days of this meaningless life <laughs> that God has given you under the sun. Ah, yes, all your meaningless days. I, th I think that'd just be swell to put on a card. <laughs> Chapter 11, this is the, kind of the closing poem. Death is the great equalizer. It devours the rich, the poor, the good, the bad. Death is inescapable. The dust returns to the ground from which it came, and the spirit returns to the God who gave it. Meaningless, 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 says the teacher. So again, in the closing thoughts, hard work. Well, just think about all the stress and effort that's going to come from all that hard work. And very soon you'll be too old to enjoy all the wealth you accumulated anyways. Pleasure? Yeah, go for it, but Monday will always come. Hevel, hevel, hevel. Get rich, try it. You're going to die. Hevel. Raise your status? Yep, hevel. Because there are no guarantees in this life. And the teacher's kind of closing words as we get to chapter 12. So what's the conclusion of the matter? I think the best the teacher leaves us with is all you can do is accept this hevel and try and not fight against it and enjoy the simple things of life. Friends, family, food, sunsets. And when you adopt this wholehearted trust in God, maybe, just maybe, if you're not one of the unlucky ones who's taken early, you might get to enjoy a few of those simple things. You must accept Hevel. And the closing exhortation, we transition from this oral presentation of this ancient philosopher, this teacher, this wise critic, we might say, and we come back to the editor who has composed this book. So we leave the first person of the teacher and we come back to the editor. And chapter 12, verse 13, the editor says this, Now all has been heard. Again, this was an oral presentation. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commands, for this is the duty of mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including even hidden things, whether good or evil. Woo. 
Well, let's go watch the Super Bowl. <laughs> so, I know that's somewhat brief, but giving us, you know, a sense of the text, a sense of just sitting in it and observing. And now we'll transition to the third kind of movement of interpretation. We're just trying to, to hear it as it is, as best we can. And now this is Dave trying my best to let the message of this book, and I sat in it and read it the last couple of weeks more than you guys, obviously, and more than you just heard. But yeah, I mean, in, in many ways, I think the, the goal of faithful interpretation, there's a famous theologian in the 20th century named Karl Barth who talked about the Word of God being the incarnation, being Jesus Christ eternal. And then we have the Word of God, as in the scriptures, that testify about him. And then in the church, in the local expression of believers, we have the Word of God preached through the members of the community. So we have the Word, the Word, and the Word. And I think in many ways, faithful interpretation, what we're all trying to do, whether it's an actual formal gathering like this with someone preaching up front, or whether it's sitting over coffee with a friend or sitting in a house church and a bunch of people are bringing a word, right? What we're trying to do as faithful stewards of the scripture is we're trying to let the scriptures now move from this academic framework, objective thing that we can reflect on and understand and let it come to bear on us in our lives, in our real attempts to bring it to bear. And in many ways, I think something very special happens. I mean, I think it's still why public preaching is valuable because when the Word of God, Jesus, through the Scriptures becomes enfleshed in our little human lives, well, now it becomes present and real for the community. And Matt did a beautiful job of this last week. I mean, he literally choked back tears as he stumbled through, you know, reflecting on the will and testament that he wants to leave for his kids, how he wants to be remembered by them. So I'm going to give us some broader reflections as I'm trying to draw out some interpretation and meaning here. And then I'll share a couple personal stories as well. And then we'll transition back to worship. So yeah, I think, I think the clear theme of this book is obvious, 38 times. And I had this professor in seminary who actually, he used to teach a whole class on Ecclesiastes and he has his own commentary on it. And he translates the imagery of Hevel as a mirage, which I think is a really powerful imagery of something that actually it speaks to me. Like when, I, when I, I'm like a vapor, a smoke, a futile vanity, none of it really makes sense. But when I think of a mirage, I'm like, oh, yes, yes, yes. I have many times in my life been chasing after mirages. And then I know those feelings of disappointment when those expectations and hopes are missed. Life remains elusive despite our deepest desires and satisfactions for it to be otherwise. And I often think of this, <clears throat> when I read Ecclesiastes, I think of this quote by C.S. Lewis, if I find within myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And I think on, on one level, the book of Ecclesiastes does, it's, it's a little depressing, like there's no doubt. I think it's brutally honest. It leaves us with this kind of 
reserved form of hope, you know, like, hey, good luck, good luck, tiger, you know, just fear God, try and keep some commands, and then I'll just be over here crossing my fingers, praying, hoping it goes well for you. And I think this kind of strikes at least part of the reason we wanted to sit in wisdom literature and why I chose Ecclesiastes is because how is that scripture? How is that authoritative? And how is that functioning as the authority of God in the community of God? Right? I mean, it's a lot more depressing than Jesus. And I'll never forget, I was um, flying to teach in an internship school in Zambia. And I was, the irony of this maybe wouldn't have been lost on some of you, but it was lost on me until this moment. I'm in the airplane flying over the Atlantic Ocean to go and teach in an African training school with mostly African nationals from surrounding countries in Africa. And my topic is freedom. And it was like spiritual freedom, but the topic, it was, it was called Freedom Week. And I'm on the plane looking out over the Atlantic Ocean, and we had just been in a cohort uh, studying the history of racism in America for nine months in our church, and all of a sudden it hits me, huh, I'm like a skinny little white kid from Minneapolis, and I'm flying over the Atlantic Ocean, the same ocean that facilitated the greatest slave trade in human history, and I'm going back to Africa to talk about freedom. And now I can laugh about it, but in the moment on the plane, legit, I started having a panic attack. I was like, what am I doing? <laughs> and I was reading this book. It was just a philosophy book, and I'm, I'm kind of about as spiritually attuned as a doorknob, so sometimes God just has to put it on a page and speak to me through books. That's why I just carry books everywhere I go. It's like my security blanket. I'm reading this book, and I'm on the verge of a panic attack, and I don't know what to do, so I just start reading this. It was called The Structure of Awareness. It was this nerdy philosophy book, and... And there was this quote by this, some of you might know him, the counselor's in the room, his name's Carl Rogers. He's like the father of modern psychology. And at the end of his life, he was asked by a group of students, you know, Carl, you're just this famous published author. You know, you speak all over the world. You're renowned. Everyone just thinks what you have to say is so amazing. What's the most profound thing you've learned in all your years of teaching? And he sat back and he thought for a long while and he, and he finally said, I was always shocked that the things that I thought were the most personal seemed to communicate the most universal. The things that, you know, the, the secret fears and insecurities and doubts that he thought no one could possibly understand, when he would share those with people, those were the things that across culture, gender, age, race, ethnicity, people were like, yep. And what he's tapping into there, I think, is this deep-seated shared humanity that we all have. And that, that moment has stuck with me for like six years now. And it is in that sense that I think the book of Ecclesiastes comes to us to function authoritatively as scripture, right? Because this author is brutally and honestly reflecting and laying bare a map of the human soul. Do we not all do this? Do we not all go chasing after Mirage after mirage after mirage after expectation after expectation after relationship after job after on and on and on and on. Seeking to unintentionally or intentionally draw identity and meaning and purpose and validity and all those things from them. And so the book of Ecclesiastes 
is meant to, I think, expose us and help us realize, oh, wow, that's like a depressing, you know, we could objectify it and say that's a depressing old viewpoint or philosopher. But no, no, what if we sit in it and allow ourselves to recognize the mirages and the hevel that we have given our lives to? And that we actually, maybe we wouldn't articulate it in the same way, a different place, different time, different culture, but we know what it's like to chase after mirages. The author's using this teacher to try and deconstruct all the ways that we try to find meaning and purpose apart from God, our creator. He's put eternity in our hearts, and yet so often our lives feel so meaningless and futile and limited and disappointing. And we have to place this book within its narrative context of the whole God story. Because Jesus hasn't come yet. The promises of the prophets have not been fulfilled. And so the author's leaving us with this holy dissatisfaction. And it's interesting, I think, for us to reflect in our own journey with Jesus on how the macro God story also plays out in our micro stories. And I think just as in the story of God, there's a need for this recognition of holy dissatisfaction that eternity has been placed in our hearts, and yet nothing in this life quite seems to satisfy that. The people of God over thousands of years had to go through that trajectory of progression of revelation, and we too as individuals in our own lives have to go through that progression. And in many ways, that holy dissatisfaction is necessary to even be able to recognize and see Jesus for who he is. What did Jesus say to the, the adultering woman who's being judged by the religious people? For those who have been forgiven much, love much. There's this necessary component in our recognition and reception of the good news of the gospel of actually sitting in the mirage of life and how it's left us dissatisfied. And I think, just a cultural commentary, I'll just give you four quick examples, and then I'll share a couple stories. So the modern West, probably one of my favorite sociologists, a guy named Charles Taylor, talks about how Western history, starting in Europe, was this kind of pagan, polytheistic, it was an enchanted world. Everything was spiritual. And that's not just true in the West, that's true for most of the globe. It was an enchanted world filled with spirits and divination and all these different gods. And, and in the wake of Christianity spreading across the Mediterranean and up through Europe by the 5th century or so, Christianity is pushing this worldview of monotheism, right? And in many ways, the Christian worldview kills all those other gods. It reveals that they're just statues and idols and they're not real. They have eyes but cannot see, hands but cannot grab or do anything, feet but cannot walk, mouths but cannot talk. And in the wake of Christianity now, we in the modern West have moved into a post-Christian era, a secularized era, where in some ways secularism is just the child of Christianity. Christianity kills polytheism, and then eventually some people in our culture are raised up that kill the very God of Christianity, and it's just us. We're left with secular humanism. It's just humans. It's, it's just hevel. It's just our best efforts, and then we die. And Charles Taylor defines this kind of modern era that we all live in, our cultural moment, as a way of being in the world that tries to offer significance without transcendence. So secularism is a way of trying to cope with the question of Hevel, the feeling of Hevel, the, the sense of 
fleetingness and, and limitations and meaninglessness of our lives sometimes, trying to offer an answer to that meaning apart from God. To offer significance without transcendence. And Mark Sayers calls it a Jesus hangover, right? We want, we want a lot of the stuff of the kingdom of God, like equality and love and peace and a lot of stuff we see in the book of Revelation, but then no, we don't really want Jesus. And we especially don't want to submit to him as an authority figure. So we want the kingdom without the king. And I think four ways this pops up that, um, again, I'm not picking on groups of people. I, I'm saying I think these four ways pervade our own lives all the time. I think political ideology is one of the first. So politics become the hopeful aim to usher in our dreams and, and passions. Spirituality, I think we see this in this kind of self-help version of spirituality. And even it seeps into our Christianity, you know, that Jesus, Jesus is all about saving me. I believe in Jesus so that I'll be saved. Even though Jesus said it opposite, he said, no, you lose your life so that you can be saved. But no, we save our lives so that we can be saved. So this self-help version of our faith. This control-centered approach to life where we just try to protect ourselves and our people, and then we really don't worry about anyone else, which is very pragmatic and practical. And then, and then lastly, Epicureanism, the pursuit of pleasure and we hear that and we think like too much wine or drugs and drugs and crazy stuff. The, the drugs, as Matt Holst would call them. But even, even let's, let's just like, let's be honest in our context. It's, it's the hobbies, it's the fun, it's the activities. We just live for the stuff to, to kind of distract us and numb out all of these. Politics, self-help, spirituality, control, and, and numbing through passions and pleasure. We're just trying to cope with this feeling that we all know of Hevel. And Ecclesiastes confronts us and invites us to deconstruct the ways that we have tried to find meaning apart from God. And it's not just us as individuals. It's, it's pervasive in our cultural moment in the whole, even the globe nowadays with globalism and technology and and I love coming back to a quick story. I think this was the first time in my life, I'm like 60% confident, I think maybe I heard the voice of God in my head, not like audibly, not like a crazy thing. But I was at this YWAM school called the Discipleship Training School, I'm 23, and we had this team time together where we all went around and did the kumbaya, share your story thing. And it was like way too long. It was not planned out. So there were like 12 of us and it took like nine hours and people are passing out by the end because they haven't eaten anything and since breakfast. And, and I'm like the last one to go and everyone's sharing their stories. And legitimately, I have never, people are sharing their stories and I'm like, share your story? Like, I have a story? I... I'd like never even thought that way. I didn't, I didn't conceive of my life as a narrative or a story. And after 10 minutes, shared some facts about my life. And I was like, oh, okay, that was good. You know, I went to this high school and I did that. And I, oh, I played soccer for a while. That was cool. And then I left my team time and I went to a work duty. And I was on recycling and trash. So I drove around in this truck with another guy, and I didn't know how to drive a stick shift, so he drove, and I would stand in the back, knee-deep in garbage, and I'd lean over and grab the bins and dump them out, and then we'd drive up the hill and push it all out, and we'd sit there and sort it, 
And literally, they're some of my favorite. I'd just be back there like, woo, garbage duty. And now I wouldn't do this for 50 bucks an hour. I wouldn't. But I'm sitting in this truck, literally in filth up to my knees. And I remember feeling this pit in my stomach. And now I would go, oh, it was, it was shame and embarrassment. But I didn't know it at the time. I just felt like I was going to throw up and I was getting the tinglys in my mouth. And I, and I just remember being like, what is going on? And, and then all of a sudden this, this thought goes through my head. It's a question. It says, is that, is that what you want the rest of your life to look like? And in the moment, I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm realizing, wow. I'm embarrassed of my life. Like it's, it's just, it's just me doing some things. The, the picture I got later on praying and journaling about this moment was, it was just me with a basket and I'm just filling it with rocks. And then while, while I was journaling, I felt like the Lord said, you were a slave hoarding rocks. And I'm in this moment showing everyone my rocks and all of a sudden just being confronted with self-awareness of the fact that, wow, my life is really sad and meaningless. And the question just comes, kept coming again. Is that what you want the rest of your life to look like? You know, I want to be 80 years old and look back and be like, yeah, I did some stuff. Here's my rocks. Had a career. Went to grad school. It's kind of cool, I guess. I proved to people I was really smart, and now I'm dead. <laughs> Hevel. And there's this question in the middle of the book of Ecclesiastes where the author says, who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down to the earth? And he's basically saying, I don't know. <laughs> when you die, who knows what happens? Are you just an animal and your spirit's just gone? Back to dust? And it struck me, <laughs> we know the answer to that question. Or at least we believe we do. If you're a follower of Jesus, we claim to believe to know the answer to that question. That no, the human spirit does not just go down to the dust like the animals. And for the animal lovers, I don't know. Maybe there's hope for animals too. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not ruling it out. And I would just say as, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we know the answer to this. This is Paul in writing his letter to the church in Corinth, and he says, Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? That's a completely different conclusion and plot line than the author of Ecclesiastes. Death, the great equalizer. No, no, Paul says, Death, where's your sting? You're not the great equalizer anymore. And Paul has experienced that narrative play out in his own life when he got his butt knocked off a donkey by the risen Christ. And he knows, and he would die for this truth. He knows that death does not have the final say anymore. We no longer are stuck with death, the great equalizer, but death is your sting. And again, Paul is not naive. A little earlier in that same chapter, Paul says, By this gospel you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. Same Greek word used in the LXX translation, hevel. 
If our hope in Christ is for this life alone, we are to be pitied among all men. What's Paul saying? He's saying, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, <laughs> woo, we're like hevel squared, hevel, 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 because we're believing in mirages and chasing after them. We are to be pitied among all men if Christ did not rise from the dead. And so connecting this all back, I don't have time to tell the whole story. But there was this crazy moment about a week after that moment in the truck where I got confronted with the invitation of surrender to Jesus for probably the first time in my life, or at least the first time in my life that I was ready to actually hear the invitation to surrender. And it shook me. It was like one of those panic attack moments. I listened to this teaching message and it stirred up all this stuff. And some of you guys have heard this story. I haven't shared it in a long time. I'm on this YWAM base. I'm sitting with a bunch of people and I feel, oh no, it's a bubbling of emotions and I don't know what's happening. And I realize I'm going to cry. And I'm 23 and I've never cried. And I'm like, what is this? I feel the tears coming. And I instinctually, my animal brain takes over and I know to get up and run and hide in a dark place. So I go wandering down the campus, I go over to this parking lot and I sit down by this dumpster and I just start bawling for a good half hour and I don't even know why I'm crying. It's, you know, the ugly snotty booger tears everywhere. And essentially I'm coming to grip with this reality of Hevel. And I'm existentially there in this moment weighing the, what Paul's talking about. Because I'm thinking, okay, okay, I, I'm dissatisfied with my meaningless life that I've come from, that's for sure. But now these people are telling me these fairy tale stories about this guy named Jesus, and I don't know about this. I don't want to end up, like Paul says, to be pitied among all people for chasing mirages the rest of my life. And I'm sensing the cost of a true surrender to Jesus. And I'm weighing it, and I'm just having this existential crisis. And finally, I just throw my hands up, and I'm like, Lord, I don't, I don't even know. I'm so tired of this. I've been kind of trying out this Christianity thing for a couple years and exploring it, and I'm so tired. I... And I pray this dangerous prayer. I say, Lord, you need to send someone to come find me in this parking lot or I'm done. I'm walking away. And I'm sitting on the ground and within less than a minute, there's this parking lot, there's another parking lot, and then there's this apartment complex with another parking lot, and then there's this big jungly vacant lot. And someone walks out of that jungle through that parking lot about 200 meters away. And it's this old guy looked like he wandered out of the geriatric unit at a hospital or something. And he just walks right by me and he comes up to the dumpster. He turns around and he walks right by me, staring me in the eyes, smiling straight back through the cars, through the parking lot, into the jungle and away. And I mean, I'm not claiming that that was like Paul getting knocked off a donkey by risen Jesus, but something... <laughs> In that moment, something about the mirage became substantive and real in my heart. And it didn't fix everything. It doesn't mean that I don't still chase after the wind sometimes and get caught in hevel and live for other false identities and get discouraged when I let people down or that I don't let people down. But something fundamentally in the fabric of my body and my worldview and everything about me changed in that moment. And I realized, holy crap, maybe it's not a mirage. Maybe after all these other mirages, there's one that's actually real. And I was 
journaling about, you know, all these moments in the weeks that followed and that one line of, I used to be a slave hoarding rocks, praying this out. And I'm like, Lord, what happened that night? What happened in that moment? And, and he said, you used to be a slave hoarding rocks. Now you're a son scattering seeds. And C.S. Lewis has this great line. He says, if we put first things first, we get everything. If you put second things first, you get nothing. And in the kingdom of God, the crazy thing about life with Jesus is that when he becomes the ultimate, when we come into that posture of surrender and lordship, we actually get all those other things too that used to just be chasing after the wind, but now they're infused and filled with meaning and purpose. You can go be involved in political things if you want. (laughs) Drink and be merry. Hang with your friends. Love your family. Care and be passionate about your work. Do those things, but now they are restored and redeemed because they are in the right alignment with reality. And so we're going to give a little space of just reflecting and sitting on this idea of Jesus being the fulfillment of Hevel, right? Through joyful surrender that we actually get to pass through Hevel. And now the things that once were Hevel in our lives are no longer. And I love that our most regular practice through all denominations in church history is communion because it's not a mirage. There's bread and grape juice right here in front of you. And it's not a mirage. It's not just a worldview. It's not just a theory. It's something you put in your belly. It's real, right? Because Jesus wants us to remember the reality of his resurrection and the reality of the hope of the new heavens and the new earth. So I'll let Sayo invite us. Thanks, Dave. Yeah, as a church community, I would invite all of us to maybe ask or maybe pray that risky prayer that Dave prayed. Just send someone, God, if you're really real, or whatever that prayer might be. I've literally sat where Dave sat, and when he's telling that story, I was there. Those three parking lots, there's not a pathway for someone. He's not on the edge of a trail, and some guy comes. There's a literal rock wall that some old dude climbed up, jumped into some shrubs, walked two parking lots. It was this risky prayer that he prayed and this whisper of this kingdom, right? This whisper of God's promises that we have yet to experience here, Dave tasted it. And that's why it's called a sign and a wonder. It's, it's a sign because it points to something else. And so in our lives, there's so many whispers. And the only whisper that will hold the test of time, that will hold the tangible, you can taste and see, it's God's goodness. That's the only good news there is. And he gives us this opportunity to take communion to partake in his body, partake in his blood, and to say, yes, I will be a part of this kingdom that I hear whispers of, and I don't taste and see it yet, but I believe I will. And so as we're led in worship, yeah, I just invite us to partake in the only tangible reality that we have access to. Take communion and 
ask that risky prayer. Thanks for listening. If you want to connect further, please visit us at www.cdchurch.org.